QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Amanda Brown. Amanda, or Mandy, is a language and learning educator in the QUT Learning and Teaching Unit. On this episode, Mandy and Jody discuss a wide range of topics, including how to write well and how Mandy helps students learn to do it, how to deal with struggles in academia and in life, and the value of learning by doing. A bit later in the episode, Mandy discusses her PhD project, which looked at child emotional abuse in family law parenting matters. I'll include a content warning here for mentions of domestic and family violence, parental alienation, and how the emotional abuse of children is treated in court. These discussions don't detail any specific instances. Mandy's PhD focused more on how these issues were treated in court generally. I'll include a link to her thesis in the show notes. I'm probably not allowed to say this, but I giggled a lot listening to this episode. Mandy has such a fun and interested manner, even when discussing difficult topics. She's both incredibly smart and incredibly easy to listen to. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed editing it. Without any further ado, Amanda Brown. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? Oh, hi, Joan. I am Dr. Amanda Brown. You can call me Mandy. And I am a language and learning educator. And I'm also a sessional academic with uh, the law school, but predominantly I'm a language and learning educator for law and for justice. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, of course I do. It means I'm part of the the group called the Student Success Group in learning and teaching, in the learning and teaching unit at QUT. And my job is to support students in particular, because we're talking justice here. I'm justice students in things like how to do their assessments, how to learn how to write effectively, how to research sometimes. So the law, law, sorry, law librarians, well, the justice librarian, Sandra Fry, I know that you've spoken to her. I love Sandra Fry. She is amazing. Amazing. Isn't so she's she? the queen of that. Yeah. But yeah, so basically my job as a language and learning educator is to help people do better at uni. Why do we need people like you? Because nobody's perfect. And what <gasps> I know, stop it now, I know you are. Oh. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm taking that back. Jody is perfect, the rest <laughs> of us are not. Okay. Shocking. University is all about learning skills. It's not just about outcomes, in my view. And so what you should be doing is you should be learning the skills that you can take out there and apply to whatever situation you might want to be in. So if I can teach you how to write a report effectively, or if I can teach you how to research or problem solve, or not even teach you, but help you, 
get the skills so that you can do that in a really good way and apply that to every aspect of your life, then you'll be a happy camper. Do you have a like a typical student that rocks up for help or no? No. Well, we have students who are suffering illnesses, mental health problems, who've been victims of domestic violence sometimes, and that's affected their ability to study. We have students who are excellent students and just want to improve. We it, it's a whole plethora. What the you know what you need is up to you. You just need to come to me. You might only need half an hour discussing you know how you can write more actively, for example, and I can show you that. You can, know, can you show me that? Because one of the biggest critiques about my writing is I write too passively. <laughs> so many people do. Don't come near me, Jody. I, I can be harsh. Awesome. <laughs> I, I love a bit of active writing. I heard a um. Someone told me recently that the way to understand if you're writing actively or passively is if you can put by a ninja at the end of the sentence. I have heard this. I'm not sure about this one. This is not my, you know, my major sort of approach going by a ninja. Yeah. I like to think of it as, I'm trying, it's funny, if I don't have it in front of me, I, I, I find it really hard to think about it. But I like to put the key point in any sentence right at the beginning. So whatever I really want the reader to focus on, I'm going to put that right up front so that they go, oh, we're focusing on this, and then I'm going to connect it. And so my my focus when I'm writing is all about let's just make it easy for the reader to understand all this stuff I know. Yeah. And active writing, when you put the subject up front, it really – you can't do it all the time, mind you. Sometimes you've got to be passive. But if you can do that in a sentence – then the reader goes, yep, yep, okay, you're taking me on a journey and this is the journey and it's an easy journey. It's signposted to me immediately what I need to be looking at. So that's sort of how I like to approach teaching it. Sounds to me like it's like that old saying of you say anything with confidence and people will believe you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of that loud and proud sort of thing, you know, look at me. How did you learn these skills? I tell you what, I didn't learn them. I didn't have it. We didn't have support like this in the old days. I'm going back. I've got my ear trumpet and my Zimmer frame with me. Yeah, we didn't have this as sort of support. So what I did was I learned it when I was marking papers. Ah. And I learned it, and I've marked a lot of papers in law, and I also learned it when I had to think about it to teach students for the student success group because what it required was me to break things up. And to go, oh, how does this work? Why does it work that way? And it really made me think about it. And in the past, I've just, I've always been a good writer, but I didn't know why. Mm. And I didn't know how. I just knew I'd been a big reader. And I just knew that there were ways to write. But even with structuring, I wasn't ever a great structurer. As soon as I started evaluating student assignments and going, oh, okay, I see that. Oh, that's where they're going wrong. That's not clear to me. Why is it that I can't understand what their key point is here? Mm. It made me start thinking about it. The other thing was studying law because in law we have really particular approaches to problem solving and to writing and that really helped me with, okay, what's your main issue? You know, what's the evidence on that? You know, how does it apply to this and what conclusion are you coming to? And that made me really 
focused on just a process and I really like processes because then I can replicate them over and over again and and get a better outcome. How do students find you? Ah, that's, uh, that's, I hide. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, fair. I, I'm like the totally Easter fair. bunny. <laughs> I'm the Easter bunny hippity hopping around, just <laughs> hiding everywhere. No, they, they can, you can look up support. I think it's in the library website. We can supply links, I'm assuming. Yeah, totally we can supply links. Um, and we're the student success group. So I will generally work with justice students and law students, but we have student success language and learning educators and career educators for all the faculties and all the schools. And so they can help students regardless of what they're doing. So there are links that you can click on to see if you can talk to us. We all have our own special little um, email addresses as well. And I think you can ask your tutors. Um, they may not know us about us or your unit coordinators to hook us up and say you're struggling. You know, if you are struggling, that's okay. You know, the best thing for anybody is to ask for help. Yeah, 100%. And don't be ashamed. Shame is such a ridiculous uh, emotion. Don't Don't think you should know something or that you should be able to do better. If you haven't been trained or helped with it or have it properly explained to you in a simple way, well then... You know, why are you expected to know that? And, yeah. you, and being at uni is all about learning those skills. An undergraduate degree is all about learning skills. It's yeah. not about achieving as much as it is about getting an idea of what it is you need to do and how you can do that effectively. So you can help students that are struggling, obviously. What about those students that are sitting on like an average of a six and are wanting to push to a seven or a five and are wanting to push to a six? I will help them too. Because I think I think it's important to have that equity approach to that. Because if you want to get better, you need to get, you know, some help. Mm-hmm. And it may be, and I find with students who are on that credit or that distinction, that often it's only a little, a ch- tiny little thing. It's a tiny little thing. And once you can explain that and have a look at how they're going with that, then they're on their way. Yeah. So it, it may take a few sessions of chatting and working with it or it may take 15 minutes yeah it's just and then they get that aha moment and they can go away if they forget it they can come back yeah what do you think is the most frequent area where students go off course in their writing Oh, that's a that's a big question Jodie what I'm known for I know she's asking the big questions (laughs) okay then I think breaking down the task that they get in an assessment is a really big problem for a lot of students. And what you have to understand when you're breaking down your task is, is it's a process. You know, you can't just look at something and go, I know what to do. Yeah. Those of us who are further on in degrees and or who have Life. finished de- degrees, we've actually learnt this, whether it's somebody's trained us or we've figured it out ourselves, that, you know, in order to, to do something properly, you have to break it apart, decide what information you need to get, what the question is, the information you need to find out to answer that question, and then go and do the research if that's required and then create something and then you need to know how to create that thing so it's it's for me it's those processes it starts everything starts from the beginning you can't skip and so we need to understand that start at the beginning break it apart so that you can actually put it together and communicate everything you know 
And that's just another skill. I also think there's this great myth that writing is you just sit down and you churn it out and that's it. Like I often find I'll have written 6,000 words and I've written in the structure for a journal article and I come back and I go, yeah, but so what? Yeah. Like what is what is the point here? Is the point that you're trying to make coming out clearly? Yeah. Have you actually done what you set out to achieve? It's not just a, I just sat down and churned out 6,000 words. And, and, you know, I don't know what you think about this, but most questions you get or most articles, they're usually about a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, in... In academia, we're usually looking at a problem or something that, you know, in law, when I'm teaching law students, a client doesn't generally come in because they're a happy camper. They come in because... They've got a problem. They've got a problem. And so you have to be able to identify that problem or that question that you have to answer. And then as you're going through, you need to structure, you know, your process. Again, create research questions, you know, create little headings of the things that you need to know. Think about things in the context of, if I'm going to talk about a problem and answer this question I need to explain to the reader about the context or the background to this what's actually happening if I'm asked to measure you know whether something's working a policy is working properly well I really need to look at why it was put into place yeah first and what it was supposed to achieve so it's about being able to ask who what why when how where questions and then structure in a really you know systematic way you know what do I need to do to answer this question? What information do I need to give the reader first? And then what do I need to unpack in order for the reader to understand the complexity of the issues? What are my key points? Um, what evidence do I have to support those key points or in my argument? And then what am I concluding? Am I making a recommendation? Why am I making that recommendation? So does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I feel like I'm learning. <laughs> Stop it. This is a university. <laughs> You're not supposed to. I think there's this also this notion that somehow there's this psychological construct that we give students a task and we expect them to have the answer. Yeah. And I don't actually think that's true. I no. think our biggest expectation is not that you'll have the answer, but you'll go out and actively find out what the answer yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it's it's the process. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always carrying on about processes, and it is. It's the process of learning, Yeah, you know, and then being able to discuss what you've found. That's what academia is pretty much all, it really all is. about. And that's what work is all about too. If you're doing a policy, you know, report or something like that, somebody said, well, tell me about this, and you've got to go, oh, I don't know anything about that. Well, I need to go out and find out about that. What what aspects of that do I need to find to, to sort of really, really tell everybody what the issues are and how we might be able to address yeah. them? Or even if you're working with a client and you need to bring a one-on-one client on a journey, yeah, you need to understand how you can provide the right information yeah. to people for them to make decisions about their lives and who they want to be and what they want to do. Yeah. And that's all a process. Yeah. Which we process the P word. <laughs> the P word. Mandy, how the heck did you end up at QUT? Oh, it's a long run, doll. Uh, let's see. I ended up at QUT because I decided to do a law degree after initially I went to university. I was a single, you know, a child from a single parent family, and I never, you know, I thank you, Gough Whitlam, because I got to go to Gough university. Whitlam. Um, I wouldn't have otherwise, and I was pretty useless at school. Let's just say I was lazy. 
uh, let's really reiterate that, that I was lazy. So I went to university and I bombed out something chronic. Yeah, you did. I so bombed out. What did you study? I was doing an arts degree and I was doing an (laughs) honours degree. Yeah, wait for this. (laughs) Just love that I bombed out of an arts degree. (laughs) I know. It's good, isn't it? So great. I know. And I wasn't even drinking at the time. I'm doing anything (laughs) bad. But I was in a domestic violence relationship. See, that's trauma. It's trauma. Bloody trauma. I'm just going to base it all on trauma. Totally. Uh, Yeah. So I bombed out of it. I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. I actually wasn't ready for it. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I went off and I bombed out and I went overseas and then I came back and then I got a job in the library at Channel 10. So I was in the news library at Channel 10 and I started working in current affairs, news and current affairs, just supplying, doing, you know, all sorts of things, documentaries and, you know, finding vision and that sort of stuff. And then I got a job at the ABC and did work for programs like uh, Four Corners and, you know, a 730 report. And it was great. And it was a fantastic experience. But then, strangely enough, in my late 20s, yeah, I think it was my late 20s. I got pregnant. Would you believe it? And I went, oh, I've left my degree behind and I didn't finish my degree and I really think it's a very good idea. So I did an external degree at UNE, and, which was a great uni, mm. and I finished my arts degree. Yes, I know, I bombed out of my arts degree. Don't cry for me. I mean, like you got there in the end. (laughs) I did, but it was, you know, let's just say it was a long haul. And then I went, oh, that sounds, I did that quite well. And and I'd done much better when I was older. Mm. I was focused and I, and I knew a few more things and I'd learned a lot from just writing reports, just doing basic things in my workplace. And my writing had really improved and and I knew how to structure it a lot more. And so I went, oh, I know what I'll do. I had a a small child, I'll do a teaching degree. Well, I didn't last that long. I think I lasted for my first prac and sorry to any teachers out there, but I had grade ones and twos and that was it. It's just not for everyone. I I just can't, I just thought, no, that's too hard. What will I do instead that's easier? I did a law degree. Of course you did. Of course I did. And then I did my law degree and I got first class honours and they offered me a PhD scholarship. And then I taught while I was doing that and somehow I ended up as an educator. How... Rephrase. When you decided to do a law degree, did you think you would practice law? I didn't know. I did it predominantly to see if I was smart. You know, it's. <laughs> I know that sounds wrong, um, but I came from a very bright family uh, who were very bright in science and maths, and I was regarded as quite dumb, you know, and I was also a girl. Yeah. And my father had said to me, look, you're tall, you're blonde, why don't you become an air hostess? Why don't you just become <laughs> an air hostess? An air hostess. And let's oh. just say that to those of you who are listening who are uh, younger and uh, grew up in later eras, that was only in the 80s. Yeah, so wow. I'm telling you the view in those days towards women was still very different and it's not that long ago. No shade on hosties, by the way. No shade. Your job is no, hard. It is a bloody hard job. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he just and I sort of said, but I want to be 
a journalist or yeah. this or that. He said, oh, no, don't, no, that, that's foolish. You'll just go off and have babies and and look after your husband. And I went, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like the world is a bit of a different space now where it might be more difficult to just go off and get a job with Channel 10 in the library. Mm. Like you might need a degree to get into those yeah. jobs. Like I think women of maybe our generation could bounce around a bit more we could. than generations can now. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there was a lot more freedom in those days to just turn up somewhere, which is what I did at Channel 10. I'd come back one week after I came back from overseas for six months or whatever it was. I saw an ad in the paper. It was that the job was advertised at Channel 10 and it, it, the closing date had closed. I turned, I rang them up. <laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, and um, the, the, the librarian was this fabulous lesbian woman and she just went, come in! And <laughs> I went, I'm a coming. And we talked about feminism. Yeah, you did. And yes, we did. And we got it. And I got the job. Yeah, it was a lot easier. You could just sort of move around a bit more without having to have a degree. So what would your advice be, I guess, to those students who are sitting there midway through their bombed out arts degree going, I just don't feel like this is for me yet? Well, see, that's a, you, the word there is yet. And, and I think that, that in my job as an educator, what I often get is students really struggling at a moment and they keep being bound they keep themselves bound with those words should that word should mm. i should be doing this i should be doing that i should be doing the other the, the problem with that one is it constrains you you know everybody has time it doesn't matter. i did my degree in my late 30s and 40s i did my phd in my 40s you know it, it, it's life is not necessarily this confined thing that means if you don't do it now that's the end for you. Even though our generation did have a bit more movement, it's still possible to go and do other things and come back and be more prepared because of your experience. And I think experience is really important. And if you're not ready to study now, then going off and doing something else, even if it's as a checkout person or whatever, it, it will give you an ex something, something yeah. that will help you. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's my view. I, I just think everything, you should take everything in life as a challenge and go and suck the, you know, the knowledge you get out of its marrow. There's so much pressure, I think, mm. now just to go straight from high school to university mm. and know what you want to do for the rest of your life. Oh, and my it, God. It's entirely unreasonable. I agree. It annoys the heck out of me. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I probably still don't know what I'm going to do. You I mean, know, <laughs> maybe kids these days are more onto it than we were. Some of them are. Some I, I really envy those people who just went, "Yep, yeah, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be a doctor. I'm gonna be this, or I'm gonna be that," and have gone and done that and still love it. Yeah. But I think it's seven careers that most people yeah. have nowadays, and so this is why I'm saying, you know, learn the skills. Yeah. Because, you know, your degree will be great, but the skills that you get from that degree, and like justice is amazing for that, you know, ability to problem solve, that ability to, you know, look deeper, you know, into things and then really dissect social situations and just 
you know, I go, well, what does this really mean? How does it impact anything? It's great, you know, for the critical analysis side of it. So important. I mean, and I was reading something, people who do degrees like justice are more employable. And not necessarily in justice areas, just they're just more employable. Because of the, like, I think we are great at generating transferable skills. Yeah. Sometimes where we fall down is communicating to students that they have those transferable skills. I think that's the core. But I think, like, one of the things I love about the justice school and what we do and what we teach and the degree and the policy degree is that core critical thinking is the way to succeed in life. Yes, yeah. That's how you get through. Being able to be adaptable, being able to be reflective, and I hate the word resilient. Yeah, me too. Let's just go with adaptable. Being able to be adaptable yeah. and understand multiple points of view. Yeah. To me, that's an incredibly beautiful and profound thing. And and, and the, also I think, you know, and I know we do this at university in a, in a lot of areas, but understanding that evidence is really important you mm. know an opinion's an opinion but you know with that opinion make sure that you you understand what the evidence is what the facts are and not just the facts as in google yeah you know and so that you can make an informed opinion and be prepared for people to dislike you for making that <laughs> And they will. And they will, my word, they will. But that's okay, you know. I mean, I just, I mean, I loved my law degree because my law degree, we learn problem solving using Isaacs or IRAC, which is issue, law and authority, apply to the, you know, apply law to the facts and conclude. Now, I use that all the time in my life. Well, what's the issue? And it allows you to step back. So if Mm. you learn these strategies for problem solving, then it, it helps you step back in your personal life and go, okay, well, let's let's have a look at this, you know, and what's the evidence around that and, and how can I apply this and what, what do I think? What's my conclusion? I really like that. It just helps me when mm. things get too emotional or too difficult sometimes. Why did you do a PhD and not practice law? Oh, I'm a crier. <laughs> I am so empathetic, it's outrageous. <laughs> so it's pathetic. My empathetic is pathetic. I cry. I cry when students cry. I cry. <laughs> Can you imagine me in a in a bloody solicitor's office going, tears running down my face because somebody's upset? I just thought, no. <laughs> I'm not doing that Uh, and so yeah and I also you know I I realised that I was I felt too old Mm. I felt too old to go out there in the the big old law area but predominantly it was my empathy and also you know there were things that I didn't want to have to do Uh, and lawyers do have to do a lot of hard things that they don't want to do that they don't want to do morally yeah and Oof. Oh, that's sorry. Sorry to you lawyers out there. I, I... <laughs> I mean, true story. We're all about the truth here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what has been your biggest professional challenge? I'm uh, doing my PhD. What was so difficult? What, like, what was so challenging? I, I had two little toddlers. Uh, it was on a particularly traumatic issue that I'd chosen because my family had been infected by that issue. It was on um, 
uh, child emotional abuse and family parenting matters. And it was difficult. Mm. It was difficult. And I, yeah, I found it really hard. And because it was too close, I think, and then I got sick. I got fibromyalgia from it. Mm because of the stress of doing a PhD. I don't know, Jodie, if you had that much stress when you were doing yours. None. She looks so relaxed. You just don't see that. It's just like she's almost lying back on a lilac fanning herself. It's just that. It's... Somebody bring me a mojito. <laughs> she's already got one. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that's one of the things that we kind of, I guess, see a lot is that people pick subjects for further study that they're really passionate about and they're really passionate about them because they're really tangible in their own lives yeah and then you have a lot of compounding trauma yeah that happens around i know that it's madness you'd think we'd avoid it well i mean is that not just how people change the world though yeah like yeah it's weird isn't it just what happens I mean, it it almost broke me. I have to say, doing my PhD, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've done very well out of their PhDs. I don't think I've done that well in that I I didn't go on to do any more research about it because it did emotionally break me. Having said that, what what happened with that was I was, because nobody has written very much about it at all, ever since even. There's not much going on with it. I got into teaching when I was doing my PhD and that saved me. I really loved it. I loved it. Maybe I just like being bossy. I I don't know. But I just liked having an effect, you know, and being there for students. And so even though my PhD was very, very difficult and it it made me sick, I just... I found something that was really positive and I've been in teaching ever since. And so it wasn't something that, you know, I did do that teaching with the, the grade ones and twos and that was too hard. Teaching university students is a walk in the park. Compared got, to little kids, yeah. Oh my God, you've got a more than a 10 minute span of, you know, when can, can I get the information in now? Yeah. Yeah, it's 15 minutes. So for, for university students, uh, hold five minutes more, no. <laughs> No, it's just, yeah, it gives joy to yeah. me. And and that's good. If I can help people, I'm a helper. I'm like Christopher Pine. I'm a fixer. <laughs> I fixed it. Yes. So do you have thoughts on the family law court currently then? Uh, you're, you're trying to make me contentious. <laughs> I am not. I have thoughts on the family law court that I've published about. So Yeah. Uh, look. I haven't, I'm probably coming from more of a space of ignorance in that way. I think women, it's not set up for women. It's not set up for women who are survivors or victims of domestic violence particularly. It doesn't take into account the impact of DV adequately on children. Mm. I notice there's stuff being done about that. I recently saw some research has, has sort of been done into to that because my research basically what it found was and the court was very reticent and this is a high level court the court was really reticent to actually definitively define emotional abuse of children 
But the predominant form of emotional abuse of children that was in the family court was two parents fighting over their children and using their children. And But not always two parents. Often it was just one parent. And women were treated very badly a lot of the time. And, yeah, I, I just thought there's disparity here, that mm. the way things are being done is not effective. And what I also found was that nobody was checking on the outcome of what the court had ordered. You know, where was the outcome? The court would say, oh, no, the child goes and lives with this person or the child does this. And nobody went, well, did that work? Yeah. And that was my primary problem with it. Yeah, the courts, you know, and the courts would say, we're not, you know, social workers. We're just, you know, it's just the law. But... Who went out and checked? You've just made a major decision that the impacts on the life of multiple people, including incredibly vulnerable people. I know. And then you're just going, oh, well, hope that works. Susie, I wouldn't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's like a mic drop in the court. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, the kid goes here. Drop mic. See ya. See ya. And I just thought, I found it, and there was, you know, the other thing I found was, that, you know, the court didn't want to really in, interfere in the private sphere of the individual by sending people to counselling. That's the whole reason they're there, though, to interfere. I know. I know. So there was this really weird discrepancy between that, oh, yes, we're going to send the child here or we're going to order this, it's just half-half or whatever it was. And yet they would say, oh, I don't want to interfere in the private sphere of the parents. And I would just go, I don't get it. Yeah, I, just, I don't get it either. I don't get it. And I don't know if that's a systemic thing. It, it could be a law thing because we, you know, in law you try and pretend that this is all objective and we know it's so not objective. And in family law, family law is so not objective. You know, decision makers, uh, you know, they're, they're coming and that's what my research really found that different judges will have a different idea of what's emotional abuse of children and what's not yeah and and that's why more clarification needed so to be put into the legislation tolerance for levels of abuse oh or tolerance for the context of abuse yeah it was incredible to me it seems like there's this notion that the real site of family violence is in family law court proceedings in that people are only saying there's family violence because of the family law court yeah. proceedings or the family violence has only happened because of the family law court proceedings, yeah. which, you know, allegedly drives women off the deep end. I'll call them. I mean, like, yes, it does, but for a whole bunch of different oh. reasons. Was it hard to step away from that? Like, to not continue to pursue that? Like, I know you got unwell, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it was because I did want to make a difference. But I have to say, because I was the only person who'd written about this, it was all a lot. Yeah. And I, I, it was a lot. And, I, you know, if I did it now, I would probably do it slightly differently. How so? Well, I think what I would... Oh, I don't know. I, I, I think I probably would have done my PhD in a slightly different way. It was so big that I had to find out everything in order to finally come to an approach that I should have taken. But by that time, it was so many years. I, yeah. I, it was too broad because there was so much to be said. Now I would be more likely to have a look at, you know, well, you know, the decisions being made by the courts, how effective are they? 
you know, something like yeah. that. Or why isn't the definition of emotional abuse, it's, it's absolutely mad. Why isn't it further clarified like, it, you know, like family violence is? Why, yeah. why do we not have that in the, the legislation? Because then, you know, judges can refer to that and go, well, this is what it looks like. Why is that? Why is it left to the judges on devices and their particular backgrounds to make decisions and I, I so I would like to look at that sort of stuff but you know the outcomes what's happening with the outcomes mm. you know why they're doing that are they doing stuff on this now do you know this I mean the literature that I'm familiar with is around particularly child sexual abuse because that's my special area and domestic violence mm. and the Research shows that making an allegation of domestic violence or child sexual abuse is significantly likely to result in you losing Mm. your kids and then being placed with the perpetrator because the allegation in the context of the family law court is read as parental alienation, which is a form of child Yes, alienation is one of the big ticket items for the court. Lordy, I have so much to say about alienation. You and I could talk about, because that was one of the primary things I I looked at, because there was this whole idea that women were going about alienating their children purposely. Some judges refused to talk about it, and I I have to say judges have a difficult time in, in this arena, and well done to them for just a lot of them for staying there but you know this whole idea of that it's somebody is alienating a child from the other parent and they're doing it purposefully is problematic particularly when it's predominantly women yeah that are being the ones who are the the alienators yeah according to the court yeah. yeah so we know this is the case and particularly coming out of the u.s and some stuff out of the UK, and increasingly we'll see stuff in Australia, you have what they're calling turned around cases. Yeah. So cases where kids turn 18. And then go back. And they come back and say, you placed me with a perpetrator. Yeah. And I had to spend my entire life away from my primary support mechanism, my protective parents, and now my life is totally messed up because you placed me with a perpetrator. Yeah. And, and, And it happens quite a lot Mm. and the thing is I mean I used to work as an administrator part-time when I was doing my law degree in a domestic violence advocacy service and I can't tell you how many women had to let their children go to the Mm -hmm. husband because they didn't have the money to go to court and the husband would take them to court over and over and over again and and if he was an abuser it didn't matter the court would still say you've got to have a half half agreement and if the woman denied that well then suddenly the husband got the children mm. there were just also it was it's, difficult it's, and i don't want to be anti men here <laughs> i i just it's my experience. I mean, but we also know that domestic violence is largely a gendered phenomenon. And yes. I want to accept, accept that, you know, women can be awful and manipulative and, like, human. Oh, my God, no. But I know it's shocking, shocking that I would say these things. But we also know that just statistically, 
it doesn't make sense for all of these women to be making up this no, stuff. And we doesn't. know that the family court is doing things like if the mother things that we would read as protective in child protection yeah. like taking the kids to counseling taking the kid making reports to child protection making disclosures to police uh ensuring that the kid has support networks in place these things are read by the court as alienating behaviors rather than as protective behaviors so yeah. you kind of you screwed whatever you do to try and protect your kids, and that's where that fits. Where that fits in with what my PhD was talking about was that was regarded as a form of child emotional abuse. Form of child emotional abuse, and that yep. was the predominant form of child emotional abuse that the court focused oh. on in the in the you know the the family court. Yeah, and, and that's where they went. Now some some judges would be completely different in their approach to that, and they would certainly take a more female. you know focused approach and 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 have a a less gendered approach in that way against women but yeah it was you know that woman is doing this she's stopping that child from loving the the father yeah uh therefore she has to lose the child mandy it strikes me that you still seem really passionate about this stop it <laughs> like I'm curious what stops you chasing this further is it oh. a sense of self-protection or is it no, a no I think I think I've gone past the worry about that but I don't think I know where to start so there you go huh huh she says huh huh maybe I can help you out with that I love that yeah, because I just I've sort of put it behind because see you're learning all of these things about me and it's really bad. Don't see none of us is perfect. Yeah, I just you know it's one of those things where you go, oh look, I, I wish I'd done better. I wish I'd been able to get it together. And then you sort of go, well, I've moved on. I'm a good mover. Am I? <laughs> I also think though that it's like you know maybe things comes in cycles and maybe things yeah. comes in waves and maybe then was not the time for you to pick it up no it wasn't maybe yeah. that's our biggest life lesson here is that that's true sometimes it's the time to pick things up and sometimes yeah it's not and letting go is not a bad thing and trying to force something when it can't be forced is also and an, it's not a positive way to deal with things so if you're a student and you're really trying to push through something and it's just destroying you or oh. Don't. Your, your mental health is not worth your degree. No, no. Just take a break. You can totally take time out. There's a ways that we can facilitate you taking time yeah. out and you can come back to it. Yeah, I, I had so, like I had seven, eight years between when I left my first degree, uh, first degree and went back to it. And it made all the difference in yeah. my life. I was ready for it. I had so many more skills, my experience and motivation was completely elevated so do you have a favorite theory theorist body no, of work i'm a law i'm a law person we don't have theorists <laughs> that's not actually true i know you have legal theorists i don't like any of them they're all male <laughs> no, i'm joking <laughs> we do but you know they don't tend to well the ones i can think of they tend to be more property, you know, yeah. those sort of things. They're not really... Do you have a favourite thing to do when you're helping students? Oh, I'm, I'm a terrible asker about them, you okay. know, because I think 
the way you study is always affected by your mental health and your environment at the time. And so pastoral care is, you know, talking to somebody about them and asking them what they need and helping them come to the point where they know what they need because sometimes we don't know what we need. Yeah. Do we? We just go, I know there's something wrong. 90% of the time I don't know what I need. Me neither. Me neither. And so getting to that point where, you know, if somebody's asking you questions and going, okay, so where is this and what's happening here and blah, 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 and then you can get to that point where they can give me an idea of where I can help mm. because a lot of the time people don't know. Mm. And and so that's – I generally try and talk to the person just about them. And I've had students who come in and say, oh, I want to organise myself and they're the law students. And I go, okay, so what are you doing in your life? Well, I'm working four days a week in a law firm and I'm doing higher-level sports, so I'm training, and I'm doing four uh, units. And I'm like – Okay, so when do you have some fun? Mm. When's the you time? When's the stopping time? Because we all know that cortisol levels in the brain can stop you thinking properly. And if you're stressed because you're doing loads of stuff, then you're probably not going to be able to think as effectively. And as well, the brain needs to be bored to be able to be creative. And so you need to stop. Mm. Everybody needs to stop. And trying to push through all the time sometimes you have to push through but trying to push through all the time is not necessarily an effective approach so you know with that student who came in lovely guy absolutely 20 he's 20 years old I said you realise that you have a lot of time left (laughs) (laughs) and we're going back in circular we're going back to that I've got to have it done and I've got to be out working making a bazillion dollars by the time I'm 23 you know And it was just like, oh, geez, I was such a stuff up in my 20s. But I wouldn't change it. Yeah. So in that line, what is your top tips for students surviving at university? Uh, If you're having troubles or feel that you you need help, get help. That's, That's my top tip. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. The university actually wants you to succeed. 100%. We all want you to succeed. So thinking that you're lesser because you're asking for help or that you're, you're having problems is, is just not a great way to go. It's, it's Just go and ask for help. And the other thing is if you fail something, that's okay. Just find out what it is you didn't get right and work on that skill. Yeah. Because you're at university. It's not as though you're in a workplace. You're in a space where you can stuff up. And, in fact, stuffing up is the best way to learn things sometimes. I'm going to say wherever you stuff up on life. Like, it's okay. It'll roll out. Figure out what happened, how to fix it, own it. I Agreed. And then, like, move from there. And don't beat yourself up. Just think about it. Reflect on it. Go, well, how would I go in the the future? What What am I going to do differently? Yeah. Bingo. And it's about self-reflection. Don't be afraid. We're all here to help. Yeah, totally. Mandy, you know I am a, like a massive Mandy fan. I'm a massive Jody fan. And I just, like, I feel like that you and I could chat forever. We could. Unfortunately, though, <laughs> we're out of time. But just love your guts, love your work. Oh, me too, girl. Think you're doing great things. Yeah, and please come and see me if you need me justice. Students. 100% go see Mandy. Thanks for being on How to Academia. Thanks for having me.
This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jody Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.